Well, good afternoon, Kingdom Vineyard. The last time I said that was the very first meeting of this church, because <clears throat> we haven't been meeting in the afternoon um, since, or at least I've not been preaching there. Uh, as has been said earlier on, we are starting a new series on the book of Daniel today. Most of us will be familiar with the stories that we're going to come across in the next few chapters. They're well known, and some have even made it into the English language in phrases like entering the lion's den or seeing the writing on the wall. But few, as, few of us, I dare say, have given very much consideration to Daniel beyond that shallow level. After all, there are plenty of reasons for not reading Daniel. I know all those stories. Don't we live in the New Testament now? What are those weird prophetic visions all about? Isn't it all a bit downbeat in a time of COVID? Yet there's more to Daniel than meets the eye. And though its context is one of defeat and exile, we can find a great deal of encouragement and hope in these pages. By way of introduction, I must point out what any uh, Hebrew reader would, be, uh, would, would see straight away, which is that the name Daniel means God is my judge. If we want a key to understanding this book of Daniel, then I think that's probably it. God, not man, decrees the rise and fall of nations. God, not man, defines what is right and what's wrong. God, not man, is true to all his promises, both of blessing and of judgment. And God, not man, answers the prayers of individuals in trouble. The title of this talk is therefore simply, God is my judge, or in Todd Hunter's brilliant phrase, living before an audience of one. We're about to see how that works out in times of failure, faithfulness, and favor. But before we read chapter one, a couple of words about the whole book. Daniel is an unusual book in a number of ways, but most striking to the scholar is the fact that it's written in two different languages. Chapters two to seven are in Aramaic, the common language of the whole Middle East at that time, and the remainder is in Hebrew, the scholarly language of the Jewish writings. At the end of the final chapter, Daniel is going to be instructed that the words are shut up until the end, and only the righteous will understand them. Now, that cryptic phrase, the words, is commonly taken to mean the content of Daniel's visions in chapters 8 to 12, as opposed to the court stories which precede them. And that seems to be the reason um, for concealing them from the Gentile reader. I'm not quite sure why chapter 1 deserves the same distinction. It may be that it was just written as an introduction to the prophetic section, and the stories were rolled in later when Daniel's writings were collected. But be that as it may, let's read together chapter 1 of Daniel, God is my judge. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. 
Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned you food and drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths that are of your own age? So you'd endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the, king of the, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found, like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. In this chapter, we have a privileged insight into the origin stories of the four superheroes of the Judeo-Christian tradition. We're going to track their progress from national catastrophe and enslavement through selection as court interns and a severe test of their faith into a place of blessing and prominence in the empire. For today's reading, I want to uh, break the passage into four parts. Failure, verses 1 and 2. Favor with man, verses 3 to 7. Faithfulness, verses 8 to 16. And favor with God, verses 17 to 21. At each stage, we can discern God's hand guiding events, acting in Daniel terms as a just and gracious judge. And it's worth remembering, in our culture, we tend to regard judgment as a, a negative thing, something to fear. 
Terminator 2, Judgment Day. And in fact, judgment is fair. If judgment is fair, only the unjust need to fear it. The unjustly used can look forward to judgment with joy and hope. So phase one, failure, verses one and two. From the days of Moses onward, Israel had always understood the consequences of idolatry and sin. It had always been the deal that if they deserted him, he would leave them to fend for themselves. But far from the angry Old Testament God of ignorant myth, the history of Israel actually displays a God who is unbelievably merciful in the face of repeated and disgraceful breaches of covenant by his people. Even here, at the end of a litany of rebellion and rejection, which we can read all about in the books of Kings and Chronicles, God's judgment only partially comes on Judah. In this first exile of 605 BC, only a selection of the nobles, only part of the temple treasury are taken away. Only two subsequent invasions of unrepentant Israel over the next 18 years resulted in the eventual destruction of Jerusalem and the enslavement of all the brightest and best in the land. So this was just a foretaste of the full judgment. Who knows what might have happened if king and nation had repented even then. But they didn't. And the rest, as they say, is history. But even this first humiliation was bad enough. Their king was forced to surrender and their temple was desecrated. This represented an abject failure for God's people. They could neither defend their capital nor prevent their temple being sacked. Either their God couldn't help them or refused to do so. Back in the day, there were used to stories of 1 Samuel 5, when the Pharisees uh, took the Ark of the Covenant, God cast down the idol, the giant idol of Dagon, their pagan deity, and struck the people of Philistia with plagues. This time, absolutely nothing. That should have been a shocking wake-up call. All the covenant implications were clear enough to see. It was time to turn back to God before it was too late. I just want to ask where where we turn when everything goes wrong. I think some people tend to lash out, some tend to turn inward in defeat, and some turn to worldly comforts that only serve to numb us to reality. It It can be easy to take failure far too personally. But there is another way, and now the focus shifts to four young men who found it. Phase two, favor with man, verses three to seven. In national failure and personal exile, these guys and others, verse six, still manage to find favor. We're not told that this is particularly God's gift. It seems that natural talent was enough to get them all selected. What eventually sets these four apart from the rest is godly character. If they hadn't already been living right before their captivity, how could they have started now? We don't grow character overnight. 
nor does God give it that way. The gifts of the Spirit can be given in a moment. The fruit takes time and cultivation to grow. These youngsters must have already been fully on God's side in the way that the rest of their cohort was not. But good as they were, they still couldn't escape God's judgment on their nation any more than the next man could. Nor is the Christian immune from the effects of, say, climate change, calamity, or COVID, or indeed of the fall generally. Bad stuff happens, even to God's best people. But like Daniel, we can still look for the hand of God in our circumstances and make the most of what favor we find. Jesus famously promised in John 16, 33, in this world, you will have trouble. God typically saves us in trouble, not from trouble. I think that's what Daniel and friends discerned in their selection to be fast-tracked for the top in the godless empire which had just enslaved them. If they'd wanted verse 5, it was all champagne and smoked salmon from this point on, with by royal appointment on everything on the table. Or they could have taken an unthinkingly militant stance and told Nebuchadnezzar to get stuffed. In fact, they don't even object to being given pagan names in place of the godly ones they were born with. And this is not a sign of weakness in them, but of strength. You don't mind changing your name if you know who you are before God, your only judge. It matters not a jot if you're living before an audience of one, one who knows your true name and loves you perfectly. Phase three, faithfulness, verses eight to 16. Verse eight speaks of defilement in food and drink, and that extends to the doubtless excellent wine of the king. Now, wine of itself was no problem. In fact, it was part of the ordained sacrifices of God. So Daniel's problem with the food and wine was something more than just kosher issues. I'm quite sure pigs in blankets and oysters would have been on the menu, but pork and shellfish weren't the problem. All of the king's meat and wine, and probably his bread too, would have been offered to false gods before consumption. So eating it was tantamount to thanking those pagan deities uh, for the gift of them. If you remember, this was still a live issue in the time of 1 Corinthians. But Daniel, we're told, made the decision to go vegan and teetotal as being the best way to avoid defilement. And he made the decision, but his three sidekicks obviously went along with it too. And it was Daniel who had the conversation, first with the chief eunuch, with whom, verse 9, God gave him favor, and then with the steward, verse 11. This in itself I find interesting. When God gives you favor with the top man, it may still be someone further down the food chain who you need to get opposite, to get on side. Time and again, I found that if you can get in the room with the right person, everything suddenly changes, doors open. And often that's not the top official at all. The top dog, verse 10, fears for his head, but he seems to trust in both the steward and in Daniel to work it out between them. It may have been a case of credible deniability, distancing himself from the decision. 
In any case, it is the steward, verse 11, who agrees to the 10-day test. Daniel is here risking everything on his faith that God will honour him as he has honoured God. God alone is his judge. God alone sets his standards. And it's up to God to decide how it's going to work out. It was a case of do right and leave the rest to God. And at the end of 10 days, to everyone's surprise but their own, they actually look healthier than all the other guys who just went with the flow. For those others, perhaps it was easier to think that God had let them down than it was to take the Daniel route. They were supposed to be God's people after all. And where was he? It can be an easy mistake to make, deserting God because he seems to have abandoned us. But as the old timers used to say, when you can't find God, look back to the last time you disobeyed him. Daniel is sure of his God, but that doesn't make him arrogant or belligerent. The times have changed, but God is still God and the big truths are still true. National catastrophe doesn't dictate his relationship with God. He can still seek and find personal blessing. And he does so in wonderfully respectful and measured tones. And just before we move on, I love this steward in verse 16 who took away the food and wine they were to eat and drink. I wonder, did he take the royal feast back to the kitchens and risk discovery? Or did he and his family mysteriously eat very well for the next several years? Certainly, sir, I can take that away for you. See, others get blessed when we choose to do the right thing. Phase four, favour with God, verses 17 to 21. We are not told in so many words that there is a causal link between their faithfulness and the favour of God in these last four verses. But I'm quite sure there is. If Daniel's name means anything, then surely God's gifts in verse 17 are the result of God's favourable judgment. Now, this is not to be confused with what we call the prosperity gospel. God's rewards in this life are very seldom financial. But as Hebrews 11.6 says in that great chapter on faith, God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Faith we've already defined as obedience under pressure. John Wimber was fond of saying, faith is spelt R-I-S-K. And there were sterner tests to come for our four heroes, but for now, God's gifts of wisdom bring them immediate promotion. But I suspect that wisdom also helped them in the trials to come. It certainly can't have hurt. In fact, I wouldn't mind a bit of that myself. But if I want God's continuing favour, I guess I'll have to keep faithful under pressure. As Hebrews 11.6 also says, without faith it is impossible to please God. I know I've been favoured by God in the past. The fact that this church is even here is proof of that. But that, for me, was yesterday's faith channel challenge. What about tomorrow? And in closing, let's just remember the trajectory these young men followed. They started out in abject failure and defeat, despite their own personal faithfulness. 
Yet, they were able to find God's favor, even in slavery. They then remained faithful when the pressure came on. And they ended up in positions of great influence, even if they were forced to eat a vegan diet. But surely the point is this. Even when we are down and out and it looks as if the forces of darkness have won, and we, even possibly God, have lost, that's actually a great place to start. Jesus is the light that shines in the darkness. Many of God's great heroes began in failure. Look at the lives of Joseph, Moses, Peter and Paul. Look at Daniel. Even Jesus himself was born in a stable far from home in a Rome-occupied country to an unmarried mother. That doesn't sound like success. May God grant us all the grace to start with faith from where we really are, to detect his blessings as they come, to remain obedient under pressure, and to press on into God's reward for us. That is what it is to live with God as our only judge, to live before an audience of one. Amen.